Hey everyone, my name is Alan. I help leading the community outreach here and my wife and I, we love being part of this community. And before we jump into the sermon, I have a few updates for you. First, if you're new with us, we want to invite you to dinner tonight. Welcome to the Family is a free meal we do for everyone who is new to our community. So come, learn more about our church, you'll meet some incredible people, and we'll have a great food. February's dinner happens tonight from 5.30 to 7. Make sure to let us know you are coming by signing up on our website. Second, the Bible teaches us that God gives His people gifts by the Holy Spirit that are to be used to glorify Jesus and minister to others. One of those gifts is prophecy. On March 26, we are offering a three-week class called Everyday Prophecy, where we are going to learn what the Bible teaches about the gift and how we can walk in it. When we did this class in the fall, the class filled up to where we needed to turn away people. So we don't want to turn you away. So if you're interested in taking this this spring, you can go ahead and sign up at our website, anyofdallas.org. Lastly, this summer, we're taking a trip to Dominican Republic, AKA República Dominicana. The dates for the trip are July 14th through 22nd. If you'd like to be part of sharing the gospel, discipling believers, and investing in the church in the Dominican Republic this summer, plus some amazing sand and the beach and all this stuff, you can get more information on the events page of our website. Awesome. If you'll turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, we are going to look at verse 1 through verse 7 today on the topic of marriage. And as Savannah uh, reminded us, we've been going through this letter from Peter to the early church, and we're listening to the words of the Holy Spirit through him, communicating about the grace of God. Now, in our culture here in the South, we use grace in a lot of different terms. So you could watch a sporting event this afternoon, an athlete does particularly well. You know, say, it's, you know, it's by the grace of God that I've got these talents and, and I do this. Right, that's one way to use grace. You might go to lunch after the service and someone say, hey, before we eat, can we say grace, right? AKA, can we pray over the food, another grace? If you talk to a true Texan, they're going to say, I'm Texan by the grace of God, right? Another way that we use the word grace. But we're not talking about any of those three kind of ways that we might use it. We're talking today about the grace of God that comes uniquely through Jesus Christ, that we receive when we receive Christ. When we receive his salvation, we receive the grace of God. And Peter is writing to these early Christians, and he's been uh, unpacking, teaching them, demonstrating, explaining about this marvelous grace. We've seen its beauty, its power, its magnanimity. It just draws you and leaves you speechless, right? That's what it did for them. And as we've been learning, I don't know about you, but my heart and my hunger and my eyes have been more aware of just how good the grace of God is. As he's talking about the grace of God, we see it's not just confined to a Sunday morning song, although that's really good. We see it, it overflows uh, into all of life, and we've seen how that impacts uh, community. Uh, that was three weeks ago. We've seen how it impacts politics. That was two weeks ago. We've seen how it impacts the workplace. That was last week, and today, Peter is talking about how this grace 
impacts or shapes marriage. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter 3, verse 1, we're going to read these instructions. We're picking up where Donnie left off last week, and Peter says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter is talking about marriage. Uh, For myself, this May, my wife and I, she was here in the first service, we will have been married 14 years. That seems like a long time to some of you. You're like, wow, you guys are old. To others of you, I remember way back when we were married for 14 years. 14 years, we've lived on two continents. I counted up, I think we've lived in 10 different apartments or houses in those 14 years, have three kids, uh, uh, one that's almost nine, a seven-year-old, a two-year-old today, and then we have one on the way, surprise, surprise, Uh, we have a baby due at the end of August, so that'll be number four, so we're really excited about that, but also overwhelmed, so you can lay hands on us and pray for us uh, as we get closer into the summer, but I just want to talk about my wife for a moment. One of the things that I just am continually amazed by, even 14 years in, is that somehow, some way, I convinced my wife to marry me. I mean, this was, I was like, this is the girl of my dreams, inside and out, and somehow she chose me. Somehow God worked in such a way where she's uh, my wife. Absolutely amazing. She leads our family uh, to love to love uh, not only our, our kids and to love each other within marriage, but to love those that we come in contact with. My wife is always challenging me on how can we love more purely and more generously. She leads us in generosity. She is a generous giver, and she wants to give of herself and of our resources to the things of the Lord and the people of the Lord, and I I love that uh, about her, and she is an anchor. She is a stable place for myself and for my kids. Just want to honor my wife, and I was thinking about our, our, our marriage, and you know, it's year 14, and she, I, I, in my opinion, gets more beautiful with age, inside and out. I just look older. Um, my, my, my daughter, who's nine the other day, was looking at my beard and was like, hey, Dad, what's that white stuff on your chin? I said, go to your room. Just kidding. I didn't say that. I did think it, and you can pray for me about that as well. But, you know, I'm just getting a little older, a little gray in the beard. But I was thinking back to when we were engaged. Now, we got engaged at Thanksgiving, right just before Thanksgiving. And I'm the type of guy, then, if I got engaged at 6 p.m., 
I was so sold to my wife. I would have liked to have gotten married at 6.30. Like, I mean, I was just like, let's do this. My wife was like, well, it just takes a little while to plan a wedding. So I was like, okay, what's the shortest amount of time that it takes to plan a wedding? She's like, well, she's like, I'm in school. You're me, me being uh, me, me being me. Hmm. Uh, She said, Zach, you are working and in graduate school. It's going to take at least six months to plan this wedding. So I mapped it out. We're in November. Okay, May. May is when we're going to get married. School's going to be getting out. It'll It'll be great, right? And then we unfold the journey of planning a wedding. If anyone in here is, is in that right now, man, it, it takes a lot more than at least I thought it would take. First thing we had to do was figure out once we were married, where would we live? At that time, I lived with four roommates uh, who were great guys, but there was no way I was bringing my new wife home to those animals. Uh, that was just not going to happen, right? She lived that year, she lived with her parents and I love, I love her parents. I love my in-laws. They're great. But I don't think that we nor they were thinking newlywed life, you know, in the, in, in the house with them. It's not just not, not what we were thinking, not what they were thinking. So we had to look for a place to live. That was number one. Number two, you invite people to a wedding, right? Now, this was in the days pre-Facebook, pre-cell phone, and most of our friends were college students who moved each year. So I was like, man, how do we get everyone's address? Uh, we used an old thing called a phone book that you had to look through a time or two. Only a few people laugh because only a few people remember phone books. But if you do, you know how painful that was. But most of the people, because they moved around all the time, didn't update their, uh, their address, right? So it's almost like you needed to hire like a bounty hunter or some sort of like carrier pigeon like to go out and find these people and bring back their contact information. So that took a long time. Um, getting married, I wanted to look good. Uh, so I, I talked my roommate, who is a college athlete, into training me for those six months. And so we would work out together. And part of our workouts, we'd go every Monday. I still remember we'd go to the football stadium, and we'd run the bleachers. And the rule was you had to run until you could not walk anymore, until your legs were, were shaking and you were concerned that your heart might explode. Those are the two rules on how far you had to run. So we worked out multiple times a week. You know, we're getting ready for the wedding day. Uh, what else did we have to do? Man, we wrote our own vows. And so you're thinking about, wow, what, what am I going to say? What's going to articulate my commitment to my wife and the way that I feel about her? So that took time. Lots of stuff leading up to the wedding, right? It was a very busy time. Uh, we're doing school and work. At the same time, we get to the wedding. It's great. We go on our honeymoon to Mexico. Highly recommend a honeymoon in Mexico. It was awesome. And we get there. And we're on the west side of Mexico, Pacific Ocean. And one day we decide at this place we're staying, they have a little boat trip that you can take out to, uh, you know, a little island of some sort. So we go on it, and we're sitting there on the, the boat. Sun, warm, you know, nothing to do. Other people there, you know, you're kind of talking to them. You're going on this trip. And I realize in the hustle and bustle of trying to get ready to be married, and trying to convince my wife to marry me, I don't think I had a single thought about what would married life be like. Like when we return from this, uh, uh, this honeymoon, what's life gonna, gonna be like? So I lean over to my wife and I whisper in her ear, Christina, what are your goals for the next three months? And, and I got the look. Now, Married men, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, married women, you've given the look. If you're not married, you've seen the look. But the look is, 
are you crazy? Like, what in the world are you thinking? I mean, we've just had, this is my wife's thing, we just had a very intense school semester, very intense preparation period. She went from final exams to the wedding, to the honeymoon, and she's like, we're on the beach. We don't have anywhere we have to go. We can just enjoy the sun. Like, why in the world do we need to have a goal-setting session on this boat on our honeymoon? You are foolish, right? She might have, she might have been right. I tell you that story because I think we all realize that in marriage, as great as uh, marriage can be, oftentimes we come to marriage with different expectations, different visions, different hopes uh, when two people come together. One person wants to set goals on their honeymoon. I know it's so weird. Uh, one person is like, you are so weird for wanting to do that. Uh, and that's funny, but there can be larger differences of vision and opinion and desire within marriage. In fact, we live in a, a culture and a time in our world where there's so many different views about marriage. Uh, when we lived in North Africa, uh, one of my friends there, his father was married to two women. So he had two people at the same time. He had two, one father, two moms all living in this house. And that was their vision for, oh, this is what marriage is. Uh, a couple years ago, the Supreme Court uh, in America legalized same-sex marriage, a different vision of what marriage is. I've been reading about lately in kind of modern um, mainstream media outlets, a new trend in marriage, that of marrying yourself. So instead of having a partner, you uh, have a wedding where you marry yourself and you invite people to that and you have a ceremony, right? Different views about marriage. Well, it's not just us. It's not just our world. Um, but John Whitty Jr., who is a professor at Emory University, in fact, he's one of the leading professors in the world in the area of marriage, history, and law. So basically, he spent his life studying marriage throughout history and the laws that form around marriage. And this is what he said, talking about the institution of marriage. He said, marriage is never an end in of itself. It's never the end-all, be-all. It always reflects the most deeply held values of the people and the culture in which that marriage is happening. Think about that. Marriage is never an end in of itself, but it always reflects the most deeply held values, most deeply held joys, most deeply held beliefs about the meaning and purpose of life in which that marriage occurs. Let me give you an example. If you think back to history class, you probably read about people getting married for political reasons. So rulers of one country would arrange a marriage with a ruler of another country to bring those two countries together. So that marriage, the deeply held value it reflected was the need for power and political power and their, their kingdoms and that sort of thing, right? You think about in a farming community, oftentimes marriage was an important step for family to have children because they needed to work the farm and they needed a, a retirement fund of some sort, which they believe could come through having a lot of kids to help with the land and to be a future and a hope for the people getting married, right? Different view uh, of marriage. We can think through just so many uh, different types of marriage in our society, and then you layer on that the family that you're from. 
I think we all know the families in which we come from, our, our mother, father, aunts, uncles, grandparents, etc., shape our view of what marriage is or is not, what is normal within marriage or not normal within marriage. So you have that layered on there. And then you have our own personal preferences, our own personal experience, right? So you've got all these different coming togethers of marriage that Witty Jr. says these all reflect deeper, uh, more deeply held values. The same is true for these early Christians that, that are hearing these words written from, from Peter. They lived in a time of a mixture of Jewish, Greek, and Roman cultures. So they have all those cultural values about what marriage is about. They all have their own families of origin that have shaped kind of their personal experience and their own desires uh, that have shaped marriage. And yet, what they're finding is as they've come to know Jesus, as they've come to experience Jesus, as they've come to be uh, enamored and, and fascinated as their lives have gotten caught up in seeing and savoring uh, the, uh, the, the majesty of who Jesus is, the deepest things about them are changing. They're being renewed. They're being reoriented, rewritten. Their desires and their appetites and their longings are being shaped as they encounter the grace of God. And we've seen in the way that that's reshaped their vision on community. That they begin to see out of this grace, God is building a new community, a new humanity. It's reshaping their views on politics. It's not Caesar is Lord, the common view of the day. It's Jesus is Lord. It's reshaping their views on the workplace. It's reshaping the way they think about work. And now what we're going to see is it's also reshaping this grace that they've seen and savored and been satisfied by is reshaping their marriages and the way that they think about marriage. And so I want to put up for you kind of the, the, the big idea that I want you to take note of today in this really dense portion of Scripture is that the grace of the gospel shapes marriage. Think of it like a root system on a tree. What we're going to read about today is the fruit of a grace-shaped marriage but I want to remind you that it's the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ that is shaping, that is bearing this fruit. The grace is like a root. What we're going to read about are fruits. And as we do that, if you're married, I want to ask you, how has the grace of Jesus Christ that you've received when you came to him, and when you come to him, how is it shaping your marriage? Or how is it reshaping your vision of marriage and the practice of marriage. If you're maybe dating or considering marriage or you're, you're, you're not married yet but you might like to be, how is Jesus and the grace that he gives reorienting your vision and your hope and your longing for marriage? That's going to be the subject of our talk today, our study today. So the grace of the gospel shapes marriage. And I want to show you that fruit, Okay. So if you'll look at the um, passage of Scripture, I want you to note in verse 1 and in verse 7, we have two distinct phrases that are kind of like keys for the passage. The first portion of the passage talks about wives. The second portion of the passage talks about husbands. starts out in verse 1, likewise wives, and then likewise 
husbands, right? So you see the instruction is coming out of, is shaping both the husband and the wife. It's bearing fruit. So what is that fruit, Zach? What are we talking about here? Uh, The first thing that I want you to see, the fruit that this grace brings is the fruit of being lifted up. The fruit of being lifted up. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when we read through this passage of Scripture, you'll notice it begins with an exhortation or instruction to the wives, to the women, and then the men. Now, this, for these Roman listeners in their day, would have been shocking, would have been startling, would have caught them off guard. They would have been like, wait, what? That Peter starts out his instruction on marriage by writing and addressing the women. Now, why was this so startling, so shocking? Well, in their culture, women were viewed like property, like livestock. A married woman was the, the, the rights equivalent, uh, the, the privileges equivalent in society of a piece of livestock. That they were not thought, it was not commonly held that women were capable of learning, of being educated. They were uh, less than. For lack of a better term, they were less than. They were looked down upon. And so it's startling that when Peter is writing about marriage, he doesn't just skip to the men. That would have been normal for their world. But he's writing first, speaking first to the women. Why is that? Because what the gospel does, what the grace of the gospel does, is it lifts women up beyond what their culture called them to, beyond what their culture said about them. The grace of the gospel recognizes and calls out that women, like men, are made in the image of God. That's what the Bible says teaches is that male and female both are made in the image of God, that there are aspects about women that reflect who God is. There are aspects about men that reflect who God is. And the gospel is at work renewing that vision, restoring that vision, breathing to life that vision that women are not less than, but the grace is lifting them up. By the mere fact that they're being addressed, by the mere fact that they're being taught, for these Roman Christians, it would have been like, hold on, what is happening here? We see this, we see that this is what Jesus does throughout the scriptures. There's a famous story in the Gospels where Jesus is hanging out with some of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary, Martha, Lazarus are three siblings. They're friends of Jesus. Jesus kind of uh, always kind of hang out with them. And he's at their house one day along with his disciples. And Martha is there and she's preparing food. She's getting things ready. She's serving. That would have been the traditional position of a woman in their culture. Where's Mary though? Famous story, Mary is not helping Martha. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. There's something about being with Jesus. There's something about who he is, his words, his character, his countenance, that she was just like, I'm going to sit right here. And traditionally, this story is taught, and very validly so, that it's about the primacy 
uh, of worshiping Jesus over just doing stuff. Because Martha comes and complains about Mary like siblings do. Jesus, Mary isn't helping me. If you're a parent with multiple siblings, you know this is par for the course, right? Mary isn't helping me. Can you do something about this? And what does Jesus say? He says, Mary has chosen that which is better, and it won't be taken from her, right? So again, traditional teaching is about prayer and just putting first. We want to be with Jesus. Very valid, very applicable. I'd encourage us all to pursue that. But there's also something else going on here in this passage that's significant. You see, that feet of Jesus is not just any place, but Mary has taken the place of a first-rate disciple. The best of the best disciples, their vision would have been to sit at their master's feet and to learn from him. And that's where Mary has gone. That There was something about Jesus that lifted her up beyond what she had told she was, beyond what her society said that she was, beyond what even may she have thought her role and her value was. It had lifted her to the place of a first-rate disciple. And what does Jesus say? He says, she's chosen that which is better. This is not going to be taken from her. You read through the Gospels, Jesus is always lifting women up, revealing that women are made in the image of God. And here we see, just by the very fact that Peter starts out addressing women, teaching women, instructing women that same grace is to be at work in our marriage, women being lifted up. That's worth an amen. Second thing, that happens is it's not just women lifted up and the men now are denigrated, the men now are looked down upon, the men now are are pushed aside. No, right? First he addresses wives, then he addresses husbands. And he refers to it in verse 7, if you'll turn there. Verse 7, down there at the end, he says, they, meaning male and female, you together are heirs, of the grace of life. So in marriage, what we see is women lifted up, men lifted up beyond what the culture would say, beyond what their families of origin would say, beyond maybe even what they felt about themselves, lifted up to a place of primacy, to a place of partnership for the grace of God. So we see the first fruit that grace brings in marriage is it lifts men and lifts women up. Now, I want to speak a, a few words to us today on this point. This will be my longest point, but it needs to be said. As your pastor, as we take these out of this first century context and we bring it to Dallas, Texas, to our lives today, what does the Holy Spirit have for us from this basic idea? I realize that there are many in our church community that are from that what you have experienced are environments where it has been anything but a lifting up, where it's been abusive, whether physically, emotionally, financially, sexually, verbally, that many of us come from backgrounds where there's a history of abuse. And and what I want to speak to you today is that many times the logic or the justification, or the validation of that abuse has been wrapped up in religious language. Even language like we're reading in these scriptures. 
And what I want you to know is that that practice, that thing that has happened to you that you've been through is not the authentic fruit of the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. That's not the fruit. No matter how much um, sought to be justified and even used religious language, that's not, that's not the truth. And so I want to say to those of you that are coming through that, that this house, this community, this church is a safe place for you. You don't need to be ashamed about your past. You don't need to be ashamed about, well, this happened to me and that happened to me and I've never told anyone this. You are not a second-class citizen in this house, but that this is a place when you are ready that you can share those things, that you can let people in, that you can share those with friends and people in your life group, and you're not going to be judged here. You're not going to be, uh, you, we may not know always the right answer, but we are going to try and love you with the love that we've received from Jesus and that we see modeled in Jesus. We're going to try and befriend you like God in Christ has befriended us. We want to help one another. And I have good news for you that this, because of the grace of God, does not have to be the defining mark of your life but that God has better things for you and that grace wants to uh, heal and restore and renew that which the enemy has stolen. Second group of people that I want to speak to, and I'm not speaking to anyone directly, uh, but I know, uh, I believe the best about every person here. I know statistically that one in four women will be abused in their lifetime. That's what the statistics say. And I think it's one in seven men. So I realize that there may be people in our church right now that you're in an abusive relationship. Either you're being abused or you're the abuser. And I realize that, that passages like these can be used to somehow try and justify that abuse. So first, I want to speak to those in abusive relationships right now. Number one, that whatever it is, is not the authentic fruit of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that. I want you to know it's not your fault. It's not somehow God's portion for you. And again, this is a place where you don't need to be ashamed about where you are, but you can let people in if you're a female, I'd encourage you to let in some females in your life group. If you're a male, I'd encourage you to let in some males in your life group. We're on our pastoral team, and we're going to do our best to love you, to help you, to pray with you, to journey with you. And again, this doesn't need to be the defining thing over your life, but it grace has better news, has better word than this for you. For those of you in the place of the abuser, I want to say to you that that practice, no matter how many Bible verses you try and wrap it in, does not line up with the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. It, it doesn't. And so I want to call you to repentance. I'm not shaming you. I actually believe better things for you than that pathway and that way of doing relationships. But the way out is through you humbling yourself, 
through you confessing your sin, and you will find grace as well. So if you are an abuser, I want to encourage you to go to some men in your life group or some women in your life group and to confess your sin and find the grace of God there for you. That This would be a house of healing and restoration and renewal. Let's let the grace of the gospel lift up men and lift up women in marriage in our house. Amen. Let all God's people say amen on that one. Second one, it's the fruit of dethroning. So lifting men, lifting women up, co-heirs of grace, where does Peter go next? You can see his instruction to the wives. He, he begins to speak to them about being subject to their own husbands. So you see, immediately the fruit of being lifted up is not, am I on? We good? Is not just being lifted up and now it's like, man, I'm just deciding whatever. It's all about whatever I want, right? But there's a deep humility that the gospel brings that when we consider our spouse, either male or female, there's an honoring, a serving, a preferring of it's not about me and my agenda, but it's how can I serve you? How can I honor you? How can I lift you up? That's what he's counseling women to. And in fact, his instruction right here about their conduct, about their purity, about what they're supposed to set their, their, their hearts and their lives on is a specific strategy. In their context, it was unthinkable for a woman to convert to Christianity, a wife to convert to Christianity apart from her husband. It was seen as disrupting the social order, throwing off society. It, it was very uh, uh, condemned. And yet Peter is not tearing them down. He's lifting them up, and then he's giving them strategy like first-rate disciples about how they can advance the gospel in their marriage, that their husbands might be one, their unbelieving husbands might be one to Christ without a word. How are they going to do it? It was this deep humility, this deep reverence, this deep quietness of trust that was going to be cultivated in their lives. And so you see there's a dethroning of self-agenda, and there's a deeper humility that comes into play for women. You see the same thing for men in verse 7. He speaks to the men, and he says, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So your prayers may not be hindered, right? Society told men that marriage was their ground just to exert their will, that it was all about them and what they wanted. And Peter said, as I'm lifting you up beyond what your culture tells you, I'm calling you to live with your wife in an understanding way. I'm calling you to humility. I'm calling you to listening. I'm calling you to serving. Right? So you see that self is dethroned, and there's a greater vision for, for marriage. Third thing that I want you to see as we close the third fruit is the fruit of being strengthened. If we go back to the beginning of these passages, they begin with likewise. They begin with likewise. Why is that? 
Because Peter is pointing back in the flow of the letter, he's pointing back to the example that we've been given in Jesus, the Savior that we've been given, the grace that we've been given in Jesus. And now he's saying, as you have received this grace, so now live. So the fuel for lifting up, the fuel for dethroning pride is not found in our own efforts, but it's found in the grace that we receive from Jesus Christ. So we don't just have good advice for marriage, but we have good news. We have a power source to bring forth this beautiful fruit that I think we could all agree, marriages where people are lifted up, marriages where humility is demonstrated, where people are honored and preferred, man, That's the type of marriage that reflects the goodness and the glory of Jesus. And that's the type of marriage that we want to pursue together. And the good news is the gospel has provided the power source for that. Amen. If we can get the the band to come up, here's what I want to do as we close. I want to lead us in a time of reflection. In a time where we let the Holy Spirit speak from these words of Scripture to us. We're going to have up on the screen behind me the picture of the tree with the big idea. I couldn't fit this whole passage of scripture on a slide where anyone would be able to read it. We'd all need like binoculars. So I'd encourage you to get the big idea, to maybe look on your device or your Bible to see the whole scripture. And as the band leads us in a time of reflection, let's let the Holy Spirit speak to us. I remember meeting with a marriage counselor, and she said, the reason people come to me is because they don't know of a healthy marriage that they know that they can learn from. And I believe better things for us, and I've seen better things for us in our community. And I believe that God wants to birth these type of healthy marriages that reveal his goodness and his glory, and he wants to do it in us. Let's let the Holy Spirit speak to us as we close. Jesus, thank you that you lift up. Thank you that your grace lifts uh, women and lifts men up, that your grace dethrones in marriage, that you call us to humility, to serving, to, to, to preferring, to living in an understanding way. And you don't just call us there, Lord, but you give us the power source to do it. And I pray that you would infuse us as a community uh, with that grace, Lord, in Jesus' name.
Jesus' name. 